0: Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Seven is the movie we watch this week. Levi, please give us a synopsis of seven. We start with
1: an old homicide, Detective Somerset, a methodical, intelligent man in a dark, unnamed city. Just a few days from retirement, he meets Detective Mills at the scene of a man who was force-fed to death. Shortly after, a man is killed with the word greed found at the scene, and our detectives know the cases are linked through the seven deadly sins. Somerset and Mills grow closer as the sin of sloth comes to light. Somerset discovers before Mills that his wife is pregnant as the detectives struggle to get ahead of the killer. A connection at the Bureau... The FBI identifies library records that lead to the apartment of John Doe, where the detectives cross paths with our killer. John Doe refrains from killing Mills and then escapes and continues his spree with the Lust murder. Following the pride murder, John Doe turns himself in and strikes a deal to reveal the final two bodies. He takes the detectives into the countryside only to have a box delivered, with Mills' wife head as the envy murder, and then Mills executes Doe to complete the seven deadly sins with
0: Wrath. Boom. It's a big movie, man.
1: Really good movie.
0: This movie, I feel like... I mean, it's already... What what year did this come out? 1995. Okay, so it's already over 20 years old, which blows my mind. But uh, this is a movie that's going to stand the test of time. This is going to be a movie that people will watch over and over and over and over again. So coming off of Alien 3 into this movie for David Fincher is a pretty impressive feat. Because it basically goes from... One of the most forgettable films in the Alien franchise, too. One of uh, the hallmark films of the '90s, I would I would say.
1: I think that the the script and the the film's plot and motivations mm-hmm. those are miles ahead of Alien Three. I think that we see his eye though mm-hmm. carry over between the oh, two yeah. movies, and I would kill to have him be able to do an alien movie where he has time to really f- chase down a good script and to work it right. Cause that's one of the big things that you read about behind the scenes with this film is that he was sent the wrong script. They didn't correct the, the studio did not have the chance to alter the ending. And so Fincher uh-huh. got the script with this ending where John Doe walks in and the wife's head in the box, which is totally a bummer. Uh, to most studios to read that kind of ending but he got it and then uh brad pitt said he would walk if they didn't keep this ending and so between Mm -hmm. the two of them they were able to keep the studios from there was talk about it being like the dog's head in the box instead of his wife's there's talk of like a big chase at the end there's talk of morgan freeman kills john doe to kind of take the you know brad pitt from ruining his life um there are a lot of other not as good as en- not as good endings.
0: Yeah. I the movie's very impressive because one of the big problems that I had with Alien 3 was that it was so dreadful. There was no hope. It was very like uh dreary was the word that I used. Movie this movie is also very dreary. And there is a little bit of hope instilled in here. There's a little bit of humor instilled in this movie. Um but it's still pretty damn dreary, and it's a tragedy uh, in every sense of the word, and yet so much more effective, so much more enthralling. And with the two-hour runtime that just clips by, it's so, so impressive. Once again, coming off of Alien 3 and going into this as your second movie, This is this is a... This is a David Fincher coming out and saying, I know that there was a lot of problems with Alien 3. Now I know how to deal with the studio, and now I'm going to have my vision on on screen, and I'm going to make sure that I'm not going to compromise that vision. And just goes in gangbusters and creates one of the best movies of the 90s. It's really incredibly impressive. I think it's amazing. Well, he has
1: such an all-star cast to back it up. The characters are so well-written. You're talking about Dreary and Hope. These are characters yeah. that we we like. All of the characters that are involved, and John Doe is a really powerful. And his speech at the end in the car mm-hmm. is very creepy and well well oh rehearsed. God, yeah. It's it's believable in the way that you watch, especially when he gets angry. Because if you've ever seen, uh, is it Ted Bundy that flips? Like when you see interviews with him, he can be hmm. super calm, but when his anger flared it was he was another person and it's very frightening to see somebody uh-huh. with that uh, distinction in personalities so uh, kevin basically crushes it they kept his name off of the the posters and the media mm-hmm. materials so he didn't know yeah. who he was going to be i didn't know he was the i remember the first time i came through and went oh kevin spacey's in this and at this point <laughs> we all know and love kevin spacey and know right. how talented he is this one he was just rolling off of unusual suspects straight into this right that guy has such a stellar record
0: yeah and it, and it's their first collaboration and obviously the big one right now is that kevin spacey is frank underwood in david fincher's produced um house of cards so this was like the first time they got to work together and then you get to see it culminate 20 years later in house of cards which is like a really cool arc uh in my opinion we're also going to get a lot of brad pitt yeah sure loves his brad pitt (laughs) well that's the thing he follows up seven with another one of the most iconic movies it's not directly after seven but uh he follows it up with collaborating with brad pitt on another one of the most uh affecting movies of the nineties and Fight Club. It's it, they're just really enduring films. So this Fincher Pitt uh combo is pretty pretty formative, especially if we're going from like ninety nine uh, ninety five to two thousand.
1: And that movie Fight Club hit us at such the right time in terms I think of our age. Yeah. It was like, yeah, burn it down. Yeah. I'm really curious to see how that one holds up when we get to it. But Me too. Watching it through the fin I think that it would be easy to watch the film and kind of dismiss some of the, you know, the uh, anti-capitalist message from Mm -hmm. it as being a little grandiose. But
0: are you talking fight club? Yeah,
1: I'm talking about fight club, but we'll we'll have plenty of time to talk about seeing it, but seeing it through the Fincher lens, especially coming off of this, there's a lot of things aesthetically that I'm really starting to notice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was watching the art of the scene which I highly recommend. I posted it on the forums just mm-hmm. before we started. They uh, he talked. They mentioned the production studio that Fincher came out of. Propaganda. Zack mm-hmm. Snyder went there, and as soon as I made that link in my head, Fincher <laughs> is what Zack Snyder. I don't think can ever be. <laughs> he has such a they they play in the same realm of. Processing the film in a very particular way. Yeah. But Fincher has some restraint, and Zack Snyder is just if David Fincher just totally went off the rails, if he was Kevin Spacey (laughs) in seven, that those would be the films he makes.
0: Well, the main difference to me between Zack Snyder and David Fincher is that I feel like David Fincher David Fincher's point of view comes from his own personal taste, like personal likes and dislikes. I feel like you know a lot about david fincher based on the movies that he chooses to make and how he makes them where Zack snyder is kind of just like a commercial director like i don't really know what Zack snyder's voice is i know what his visual style is but i don't have a good understanding of what his voice is as an artist so i think that kind of separates the two is that i think david fincher has the uh has kind of that gravitas to put his personal self on the screen and Zack snyder is more about the flash
1: have you been watching many David Fincher interviews with this? No, he's the least eccentric director we've done so far. Mm-hmm. He really seems like the everyman. He's just kind of relaxed. He's quiet. He's, <laughs> he's got his opinions, but yeah. you know he's not uh, Quentin Tarantino like up in your face, just talking, 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 talking. Like you've got to kind of draw Fincher out into the world. It right. seems you've got to really ask him questions to get him to respond, and he'll give you. His opinion but he's not going to expound he's not he'll give you a well thought out answer but nothing more it feels like at least so far i've really kind of enjoyed it it's
0: it's <laughs> well, different this is uh I, I haven't had the the chance yet but on the forums um uh garth garth goo 81 uh is talking up the commentary tracks for these and I'm sure I can get the commentary tracks on YouTube, but I, I do rent all the movies through Amazon, so I don't get a chance to listen to the commentary tracks. But I would I'd love to listen to some of these tracks because apparently I've heard from multiple sources that Fincher's uh, commentary tracks are amazing. So, uh, and and the thing that he strikes because I have seen interviews with him, but the thing that kind of reminds or the person that he reminds me of as a director is Ridley Scott. If you watched these movies or interviews with both David Fincher and Ridley Scott, they have that kind of r- more reserved. They see filmmaking as a, you know, a career and they're doing personal statements for it, but they've been doing it so long and they're so good at it. And they're so innately good at it that uh, it almost comes off as, you know, blasé. It's like, yeah, this is just what I do for a living. And you know, Make movies, and you know we put them out, and and they're good. So, <laughs> it's a very like, uh, very subdued kind of sense to their to their demeanors. As when you're thinking about the these directors like Quentin Tarantino, you're like, you know, he's going to get out there, he's going to be really flamboyant, and he's going to be um tucking up his movies, and, and you know, he's a huge movie geek, and it it seems like more of a passion project for him. It almost seems like just kind of a career. For like a guy like Ridley Scott or David Fincher, they've just honed their craft and they're really good at it. It's just like a good chef or like a good woodworker, that's that's just what they do for a living.
1: Yeah, their personality is not necess- a necessity in their personal brand, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I think it, it's interesting. It's cool to see yeah.
0: I, it. They makes, let the film speak for themselves. Yeah, it's not I like
1: Guillermo del Toro at every
0: Comic Con <laughs> laughing and telling creed stories
1: <laughs> well, and shaking people to
0: death with alcohol in their mouth (laughs) well speaking of guillermo del toro and davy mack brought this up in the forums and i completely agree and i think i brought it up when we did the mimic podcast but the mimic uh intro sequence is so similar to (laughs) the seven intro sequence uh and davy mentioned on the forums that apparently guillermo del toro uh said that he he saw Uh, 7 while he was making Mimic and he was really bummed that the opening title sequences were so similar
1: well and he Uh, was one of the listed directors as possible before Fincher for this movie they went to Guillermo del Toro first and he said that it
0: was too dark so we did Mimic instead of 7 I guess. That's a bad choice. <laughs> well, they also
1: had uh, Al Pacino lined up to play Somerset at some point, and then he <laughs> went to do a movie that nobody cared about. Val mm. Kilmer was supposed to be Kevin Spacey. It's there. Mm. This movie, this was
0: Val Kilmer was supposed to be Kevin a Spacey. A movie that
1: was supposed to be Kevin Spacey's character. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, I could see that because the thing that's very admirable about uh, admirable about this movie is the script. It is a great script uh and it's the type of movie that has plot holes and has things in it that if you think about it for a little bit you're like yeah that doesn't really seem like it all lines up the way it should but on the screen as you're watching it it really draws you in and it really moves from set piece to set piece to set piece in such a engaging way this script is so good and i feel like david fincher coming out of alien 3 uh was probably like, I need to find the most rock-solid script I could possibly find, and this script is amazing. And then David Fincher, on top of it, does really good things with the camera movements, with the uh, character interactions, the way that shots are both framed and uh, staged, um, the blocking. He does some really amazing things in the way that he reveals uh, all these things. The, The acts are so gruesome. And yet, he always errs on the on the side of not showing them because he knows that simply describing the act and telling it to you is going to be more affecting to you as an audience member than showing some big gory uh, gory you know special effect. Uh, whereas I feel like Guillermo del Toro, you're right. I can I couldn't see Guillermo del Toro doing this without doing really. Um, you know, really gruesome, like close-ups or <laughs> prosthetics or that sort there of. There would thing. have been a lot more bugs around, tons the dead more bodies. Bugs. But yeah. they, we did
1: get the heavy rain again, with the exception of the last scene, yeah. which is mm-hmm. an interesting choice. What did it, you think of the setting of this? Did did you even? Did you just assume this was New York City? No, it's Los Angeles. They never actually state. Well, they do sort of in
0: the in the opening scene when Somerset meets Mills. Somerset asks Mills, uh, "Why did you want to transfer out here? Why here?" And he goes, "I don't know." Adam Twelve, Adam Twelve is a cop TV show that was set in Los Angeles. Interesting, because there is a lot of influences,
1: and this comes up in the forums too. And I was really I got on board with this for a little while in my own head the idea i think davy mack brought it up and uh, garth was backing him up like the idea that this city is a lot like gotham because it is oh, yeah. so you know they never mention it by name uh-huh. uh it's generally just raining all the time yeah which sets a real mood for the city and it has this violence to it that yeah. we don't see but if you know it reminds me of movies like Death Wish and the Warriors there's just like this period in the 80s where 80s where places like LA and New York City the crime was was really bad and it showed up mm-hmm. it shows in all of those movies. Yeah. Like you don't walk around at night in either of those cities. Yeah. In the 80s just regardless of where you live it's just mm-hmm. too dangerous. And yeah, it was crime. Yeah. It was interesting to have that kind of brought up and embodied in this setting that you know we don't see too many set pieces but the characters do such a good job of that kind of haunting presence Mm -hmm. you know gwyneth paltrow is so worried about it uh somerset's constantly talking about essentially how terrified he is of the city you know and he's used to it but it he's never shaken it just the way that he talks about it yeah,
0: like and and the city itself is like the worst. It's so much like Gotham City. Like Kevin Spacey's John Doe could become a Batman villain in in some, you know, Frank Miller type world. Um but it is. It's it's very much like Gotham and and you know, there is that little there is that little tag at the beginning when he talks about Adam twelve, which I think puts the setting in los angeles but at the same time it's a very interesting thing for a movie set in los angeles to be raining for an entire week like this is monsoon season in los angeles well Uh,
1: paltrow also mentions moving from upstate upstate. New
0: york term i don't think i don't think
1: they use that in california
0: they don't i have never heard upstate california but upstate is, is just a directional term i mean it is more colloquially used for new york but it doesn't necessarily peg it in new york
1: Anyways, but, I just thought it was a, it was interesting that they left that open, that they never made us direct. Yeah. Because it, yeah. it could be any, it is the any city in some senses.
0: Yeah, like whenever they shoot cop cars, they always just say like police on the side. <laughs> uh, or they shoot them from above. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that the ambiguity of the city also gives you an uneasy feel because you can't quite place this. This uh, story, you know, I think tying a story to a geographic location helps you place it in some ways. Like the Departed is about Boston, or Taxi Drivers about New York, or your favorite movie, Escape from L.A. is about L.A. Um. <laughs> Escape from New York is
1: the better one. <laughs> um, now, big trouble so, but in I, China.
0: Yeah, but but <laughs> it, <laughs> but you know, it kind of uh, it helps put an uneasy feel to it because you can't really geographically nail this place out you just know that it's a place you don't want to live as an audience member not only is the weather really shitty but at the same time uh there's just crime everywhere it's this rampant crime city that that is basically festering on top of itself to the point where it's it's a supposed savior of this john doe character in his own mind uh he is also He's this monster that has been created by all of the monsters in the city. It's so much like a Gotham scenario. It's it's really interesting. Um, that's what I'm wondering. Maybe Brad Pitt would become a, ba- a Batman villain as well. <laughs> I don't know. Inevitably break out. And then, of course, uh, Somerset uh, changes his name to Lucius Fox and uh, <laughs> takes over Wayne Enterprises.
1: That's actually what he does in retirement. That's Yeah. Batman is a direct sequel to yeah. this. Yeah. Speaking of mo- you you mentioned uh the monster of uh John Doe mm-hmm. and one of the things I was watching was talking about the the title sequence the montage yeah and how we see the monster at the very start of the movie yeah and especially after coming off an alien movie where you know they're very limited in how much they show the monster uh-huh. um and the traditional horror trope of the monster reve- being revealed in the third act uh like mimic uh what so that opening montage bringing the monster out at the start yeah was a really nice touch and I didn't think about it until I just it's just a creepy opening sequence but well it's do, unsettling they do kind of give you a look into his mind from mm-hmm. the start and then you don't see it then you just see the rube Goldberg machine that he's set up yeah. in those images.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because the murders themselves are an embodiment of John Doe and his philosophy. And so we see him basically revving himself up at the beginning. And we don't know really what it is. I think that, uh, you know, it's being played over like this remix of the Nine Inch Nails song uh, Control, I think. Oh, closer. Closer. God. Well, because I was. I always think that the name. <laughs> I always thought the name of that song was "I Want to Fuck You Like an Animal" because that's like the that's you know <laughs> the that's line the, that
1: everybody knows.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, it was a very uh, it was a very affecting music video as a kid growing up in the '90s. It was like the creepy music video that you know you weren't supposed to be able to see. It was like it only played like past eleven o'clock on MTV <laughs> or something. Um, so it's but it, it has kind of that creepy music video vibe. You could definitely see david fincher's music video chops coming in on that opening title sequence um and i appreciate a good opening title sequence i really do i think it's kind of a lost art uh in a lot of ways because like well i'm a big james bond fan and you know every james bond film has a big opening title sequence and at this point they've almost become a caricature of themselves (laughs) like perspector, it was just like, okay, because, you know, in the 60s, when you have, like, the naked ladies, you know, s- swiveling around and you have the bullets flying around, it's like, well, you know, that's a different time. It's like they're trying to embody this kind of swanky jet set 1960s thing. What you're doing it in 2016, it's kind of like, can we figure something out? There's probably something else we could do that would be visually stunning that doesn't have to carry over these tropes.
1: Well, like what they did with Casino Royale. Yeah. Where they finally took it outside of that – Women did, you know, they made it graphically just, but from a design point of view, about the cards and less. The, I'm I'm trying to remember. I'm sure there are women in the. It's got yeah, a contractual obligation, but there always are. Except it for Doctor No, it wasn't like purely naked silhouettes, which is. Yeah. I feel like what they were up and.
0: Through all of the Brosnan's. Oh, yeah, and with Spectre, it was, like, the tentacles and stuff. That's right. It got really yeah. tentacle-porny. It did. Anyway, let's get back to the David Fincher yeah, title Yeah, back sequence. to this
1: creepy yeah. opening with Trent Reznor, who will show up again for... Back,
0: back to another creepy opening. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, but I thought it was really interesting. So, like, for that... You know, I I just it does so much it does so much to set the tone and then it does a great job of if you're watching this for the first time, uh gives you something to think about if you really want to, but if not it's just kind of creepy imagery because you know you're getting into a serial killer movie. But god man, I was watching this movie and when they go to the interrogation scene after the lust crime scene and they're and they're inter- and uh, Somerset is interrogating the guy um, wrapped up in the bed sheet. I was just like really taken aback that a Hollywood studio actually made this movie because this movie is so crazy dark and so extreme in the violence portrayed within it. And yet it is such a mainstream movie that a lot of people have seen and it made like over $100 million at the box office. It, it's really astounding to me that a studio saw David Fincher coming off of Alien 3, gave him this project and let him run with it because there's no way that this combo should have created success. And yet it creates, like I said, one of the most iconic movies of the 1990s. It's really interesting how all these disparate pieces come together to make something kind of amazing. It's impressive that David Fincher came back for another round of Hollywood
1: Mm -hmm. from some of his early quotes after aliens, how he just would, he could not do it again. Yeah. Just wanting to retreat back to music videos. Uh, and now he's i mean you look down every one of the movies on his imdb profile and he's crushing it with the the standards that he sets in this movie maintain mm-hmm. his ability yeah. to to kind of maintain the lighting of these scenes is so yep. dramatic and i that shows up in every one of his movies you know yeah. the tone that he's able to convey the 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 performances he gets out of his actors mm-hmm. i mean everything that comes
0: that's going to come along i can't think of none of these movies are bad no none of them are this that's what's so amazing to me is that we went from alien 3 to 7 and then he just keeps that level or <laughs> you could even argue goes up uh from there like he doesn't have any misses after this which is really really interesting i mean i haven't seen the game I haven't seen Panic Room, but from all accounts, the standard stayed when Seven was created.
1: Yeah, even so, the game and Panic impressive. Room, from what I remember, are solid movies. They're, oh yeah, you are comparing them to a list of amazing movies. Kind mm-hmm. of moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, I'm so excited to kind of take what we've, what are what are, will become our Fincherisms, and for the, me yeah. that is this this mood that he sets uh with his lighting, mm-hmm. with his setup with his cuts and his like you said, his blocking. Uh you know, watching well, was it the oh uh, what is it the the frame every frame of painting? Yep. Was that the video where they talk about his blocking standing mm-hmm. characters and jumping between conversations in the same room? Yep. And then absolutely. saving the close ups. It's and most of that video references this movie Mm -hmm. and it was just does. there's a big chunk in there
0: yeah i I really recommend people go watch it um every frame of painting uh it's called david fincher and the other other way is wrong you if you go to forums.ballmove.com and click on direct on the right side i posted it on the forums there and there's some other really good uh video essays on there but i think one of the big fincherisms that's in here and i and i talked about before is the not showing the gruesome or just giving you a flash or a hint of the gruesome, and we saw that in Alien Three during the autopsy scene of the what's the name of the little Newt. the little girl Newt, the autopsy scene of Newt. Like there's we do like get like small flashes or small glimpses of the autopsy, but it's much more affecting to have that off screen and you know allow the viewer to use their own imaginations because it's always going to be worse in your imagination than it actually is. Um have you So that I think that's definitely fincherism that was that was back used in Alien 3 and is still here in have this movie.
1: Have you seen this movie repeatedly?
0: Yeah, this is, I think this is probably my I would say probably fourth or fifth viewing. Do you remember gruesome moments that are not actually in the film? I actually so in the Lust one the suit in my mind was way more like egregious. I mean, it's obviously an <laughs> egregious suit, but I, I, for some reason in my mind, the knife was like way bigger. Like it was basically like a cutlass. It was like this <laughs> giant, like almost sword. Um, and yeah, it was so it was weird what I saw, it, and I was like, oh, that doesn't. That's not how I remember it. It really is this whole thing of of letting it go to the to the imagination of the viewer, and then, uh, and then it it amplifies itself because. Of the, you know, fear and the dread and all of that that gets instilled in the movie.
1: Yeah, I expected the glutton to explode. I thought his stomach burst when they were there. Yeah,
0: I thought that there was a scene that was like a recounting of the scene. Yeah. Like, I have a whole scene in my head of him shoveling food into the glutton's mouth and then kicking him in the side. Like, I thought that it was a reenactment. Or
1: is that really just, they describe it and it yeah they just describe it
0: false memories yes they describe it but for some reason i had thought that they there was a filming there was like a flashback scene or like a glimpses of the crime happening and nope it's just all happened in my mind that's wild and it is it's
1: not a remote phenomenon i read about it somewhere else and then went oh
0: i'm not alone so i can bring Mm -hmm.
1: it up (laughs) Mm because otherwise i would have probably kept that to myself
0: yeah, that's the weird thing about this movie is that it it really does grow on you, and and it and it stays with you, probably because it is so gruesome and and uh, you know affecting, and it plays with your plays with your mind and plays with your emotions so much. It's probably how um, most people know the seven deadly sins. It is. I that's how I know them. <laughs> that's how I know them offhand. Is definitely from this movie because you could you can. Correlate them directly to each of these crime scenes, which are all so memorable. Like Sloth. Sloth is actually another one that, for some reason in my mind, the Sloth guy's face was more like the dead guy in Hellboy 2. (laughs) Ivan? Yeah. Our buddy Ivan? It was more like Ivan, and there was like, I don't know, more skeletal, I suppose? I don't know. There was a lot of scenes in this movie that were different than how I remembered them. So, it's like a Bernstein Bears phenomenon. What? You ever heard of the Bernstein Bears phenomenon? No. So Bernstein Bears is uh, obviously a, book, a children's book series. Yep, I had Did a bunch. You, you had them when you were kids. It's not actually the Bernstein Bears, though. It's not B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. It's B-E-R-N-S-T-A-I-N. It's the Bernstein Bears. I just assumed they were Jewish. Well, yes, they're Jewish, but it's it's A-I-N instead of E-I-N. I mean Bernstein would it would be a Jewish name, but that's yeah, the thing that's is us. that they're the Bernstein Bears, not the Bernstein Bears. But like everybody remembers them as the Bernstein Bears, E I N, but it's actually A I N. That's weird. So the the idea is that at some point there was a rift in the time space continuum <laughs> that changed Bernstein from E I N to A I N, and nobody noticed. And that's like it's like this uh, kind of tongue in cheek internet uh, conspiracy thing that that it's proof that there was a time shift. <laughs> when the Bernstein Bears became the Bernstein Bears, that's solid. I follow. So, I, I think that there is a whole subreddit called like the Bernstein Bears phenomenon or something. So, you can check it out. It's it's I'm pretty go post about this movie. But that's the funny thing about it is that if you are if you are a good director like David Fincher and you are doing this stuff intentionally, you can create the Bernstein Bears effect in your viewers, which is an amazing thing for a film director to be able to do. Um, you know, the most classic case of this is Jaws. With Steven Spielberg, where he like the he basically had a necessity because the giant puppet didn't work. He had to keep the shark off screen as much as possible. But what it did is actually created uh, a much scarier thing because you didn't know where the shark was coming from, and you didn't, you know, it, it allowed you to to build up the shark in your own mind as opposed to just have it all in front of you. So, um, yeah, really. A really affecting thing that david fincher does and i'm excited to kind of identify that moving forward what does he keep off screen supposedly people have argued with him that they saw gwyneth paltrow's head in that box well she is they do it one frame no there. you do not see her head in that they box. do they do a single frame there's a single frame shot oh when they
1: yeah no he sees her face that's brad yeah. pitt imagining her face
0: yeah but i think that's her face that's i think that's her dead face I don't – now you're going like to go back, go
1: see frame yeah. by frame. There's a see. single
0: frame of it, and it's interesting because I know he does use single frames in uh, Fight Club as well. Yeah. So, yeah, this, it's he does such a good job. I, I mean, it's so interesting that this is something that he does and that he's figured out how to do by his second movie, and that's why I'm really excited to see how he incorporates it later on. Another thing that he does – by keeping things off screen is he shoots really dark and he's always shot really dark, like, uh, light wise. He doesn't light his scenes, you know, brightly. Everything is super dark. Like, and I found myself getting minorly frustrated with it. Like, you know, these guys that go into these houses, they don't turn on the lights. They just walk around with their tiny little flashlights, like trying to shine stuff on it. But it's such a good metaphor because that we're we it allows us as the viewer to go through their mindset and only look at what they're looking at. It's such a good way for us to be on the same page as the detectives because this is the type of movie where uh, where you ha- you're on the same page with the direct with the detectives the entire time. Basically, the audience and the detectives are going through this movie together. It's it's not one of these mystery movies where the audience has the upper hand that they know things that the main characters don't this one we're just going along the whole time with the two detectives and learning things as they learn them which I think is a really awesome way to do this kind of revealing film because it's it's a mystery in some ways but it's not it's more of just a kind of an epic uh it's not a mystery like the usual suspects it has some big reveal at the end it's basically some it's basically just this twisty turny thriller as opposed to a mystery but it's built up as a mystery in some ways
1: well and it's it's a very noir style mm-hmm. the notion mm-hmm. that the the main that our protagonists the as detectives often and uh Morgan Freeman points it out probably. We just file things and set them to the side. And, yeah. You know, the, they are just at the whim of this villain, and they never do overcome him. They never beat
0: him. Right. When that yeah.
1: moment comes along, it is so well executed that... And I don't... I. This is a movie that I appreciate the ending because that emotion is very visceral. And when you hear about people who... Oh, you know, I wouldn't, even if they killed, you know, the person I love, I wouldn't kill them. And I don't think that that's a honest human reaction. I think that's the right answer. That's why our legal system is set up the way it is. Right. But I think the, the, it, the emotion of people is very powerful. And in those moments, you don't think straight. It's why it's called the crime of passion. I mean, yeah. that, that's a very specific thing that we suffer from being emotional creatures and well
0: and also it's great it's kind of great knowing what the ending is and watching how kevin space's character john doe starts building up wrath within brad pitt as soon as they get in the car like basically as soon as they meet uh john doe is starting to is planting seeds to get to this end so it's not just that visceral reaction of finding out that, uh, that you know, finding out what's in the box. But it's Brad Pitt culminating after an hour of sitting in a car with this guy and basically having the guy play with his brain for an hour. The whole thing where he's like, uh, you're only alive because I didn't kill you and, you know, the rest of your life... You know, you're, you basically owe every day to me because I didn't kill you when I could have. And like all of this stuff that really plays with his emotions so that it's not just that the head in the box, it's this last hour and realizing you were, you never had the upper hand ever. And I love that line from Morgan Freeman where he goes, John Doe has the upper hand. <laughs> he, he looks at the box and says, John Doe has the upper hand. And as an audience member, you're just like, oh shit what's in the box yeah it's great <laughs> it's i great. uh and you know i think this movie i think
1: the uh, the i don't know if it's fully work What it, whatever you would use to describe the mm-hmm. the background noise the environmental noise yes yeah through the whole movie it's really similar to birdman where birdman has the drumming kind of all yep. the way through and it gets under your skin a little bit yeah uh and very subconsciously yeah. and in this movie a lot of there is very few moments of silence everything mm-hmm. and somerset i mean when he, especially when he puts on his metronome there's yep. so much else going on and just every scene is full of just little ticky noises in the background phones ringing typewriters people on the street the rain there's a lot of background noise Yeah. And so when we get to, and even in the end, it's that like the helicopter noise Mm -hmm. and then put the score on top of all of that. Yeah. And you just, your brain has been, you know, there was uh, essentially they're scraping on your brain (laughs) the way that they scrape when they uh, scrape off Somerset's name off of his door and he stops the guy. He goes, will you not? Yeah. Movies doing that the whole time. And it, so you're just already tense, and you yeah, it's smell really the trap, but there's nothing you can do but walk that, into it.
0: And they and they put it in scenes that – they put suspenseful music and these kind of droning, steady, like, like, over and over. The soundtrack uh, carries that throughout the entire movie, even in scenes that are not suspenseful – and don't have anything that's going to happen. I mean, this movie is I really think it's very admirable because it never has a jump scare, and it totally could have jump scares. And it never really has like a jump scare. It's more of a unfolding and it's I think it's more affecting that way. But like specifically the scene when uh Somerset gets the little plastic pieces in the jar and decides to go back to the house um and he goes into the house, he uses a switchblade to cut to cut the paper on the door, you know, that says do not enter. And he enters the house and he turns on his flashlight and there's just like droning music coming in that is very suspenseful music. And if I hadn't seen the movie before, I would be half expecting the murderer to be in that space and maybe pop out at him or something. Um, but it doesn't happen. And what it does, you're completely right, is build up to the end where you never feel like you have the upper hand, just like the detectives never have the upper hand. It's really, really uh, impressive. It's impressive. I, wonder, I love the use of the soundtrack. I wonder
1: if some of that, just the way that you phrase that, that you're mm-hmm. expecting the villain to be there. Yeah. The power of him is that he is still there. All of these yeah. scenes, because there's another one when they're in his apartment, Somerset has his gun out. Yep. After, after they've chased spacey off yep he's got his going out as if he's still in the apartment and you get i was just like well what is it Like, what's around i yeah. keep waiting for booby trap something but it's not that it's just that this apartment he embodies it his thoughts are writ large all uh-huh. over the place yeah and so in a way they are st- he is still present and the music plays that way well but I think we it's don't a- need his physical presence
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think it's another reason why uh the darkness is so prevalent in this movie and why the rain is so prevalent in this movie, because it takes a giant city, a giant teeming city, and it creates a claustrophobic feel where you are trapped in the plot of this serial killer and there's no real way out. And can't really do anything about it. You just have to wait around and wait for the next murder to, to happen. Um yeah, you you are you're trapped with John Doe the entire time in this movie, and I think um, that's something great. that we
1: we'll, we get from almost all of these movies is that there is a, a the environment is in embi- Fight Club. Mm-hmm. It's Tyler Durden. Yeah, uh, the game. For, I don't remember what the villain how the villain worked in the game off the top of my head. But we'll find out soon. I know that it's it is. It's that same claustrophobia. I mean, this is a character that is being run through a rat race. Panic yeah. Room, the the house tra- is even a alien, villain
0: even Alien Three. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean basically Alien Three and it, every uh I mean, obviously I haven't seen Aliens and I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but Alien and Alien Three are all about being trapped in a space with a with a killer. And um same thing here. Seven is about being trapped in a city with a killer. I mean, but but to be able to get that feel in a, de, in a detective noir movie is really, really impressive. To have it in a sprawling American city and yet have it feel small is really, really cool. Uh, I haven't even, like, gotten to the beginning of my notes on this movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've got – I mean, it's just – there's so much –
0: Well, the thing that I want to talk about next, I think, is the relationship between Somerset and Mills because they do such a great job setting up these two characters. And one of the things that I've kind of developed over the last, basically ever since we started direct, is really trying to focus on opening scenes in movies. The opening scene in this movie is Somerset getting ready for work in the morning. And we see that his apartment is impeccable. We see that he's got his badge and his switchblade and his gun and everything laid out uh, impeccably on the on the table. He's got his coat laid out on his bed. It's all very organized and very methodical. And it takes a couple of scenes, but uh, a few scenes later we see how Mills gets up out of bed and he like jumps up out of bed. Uh, he's wearing he wears wrinkled shirts the entire movie. Mills's shirt is always wrinkled. The guy's never had an iron his uh his bedroom is like cluttered, and so they do a great job of embodying how these two guys are opposites and then that kind of push pull as they become closer and closer um throughout the movie uh It comes to you know uh Somerset spends all night in the library reading these books and and Mills gets a cop to get in the cliffs, Cliff notes uh, whether they're at Mills's apartment or his house or whatever it is, uh, Mills says, "Hey man, I need a beer, you want a beer?" And uh, Somerset doesn't drink beer he drinks wine And yet at the same time <laughs> Mills brings it back a glass of wine in like a tall like glass like it's not even a wine glass. One
1: of the best comedic moments in this movie is when that subway, car goes by and yeah. somerset picks it up and then looks at it and finally registers what he has has in hand no they don't call to it it happens in the blink of an eye i had to call liz refused to watch this movie with me uh-huh. i had to call her over just to show her that moment because it was such a cute moment in the <laughs> middle of such a rough movie i don't and there's these
0: cute little moments that they put in this thing like them sleeping on each other them sleeping on each other the, the when arlie Ermy is at the desk and the phone rings and he answers the phone and he goes this isn't even my desk and then he hangs up <laughs> i thought that was hilarious and i was like why is that at the movie i love it because there are these they're these little touchstones in the film that let you breathe for just a second they let you just have a tiny little chuckle and it helps kind of temper the dread because you, you're you going along with these guys and you have something to smile at. There's like this weird scene when Somerset goes over to Mill's apartment at Gwyneth Palt- and Gwyneth he, Paltrow. And he says, you know, it smells good. And Gwyneth Paltrow says, oh, yeah. I mean, thank you. <laughs> like, I don't know why that line is in the movie. It kind of, I, like, it's such a weird thing to write down on a page. Like, I don't know if it was improvised or what. But it's so weird to have a character say, hey, it smells good. And then the other character says, Oh yeah. I mean, thank you. That's a very human moment though. I they, It's an all the time human moment. where you
1: you say something like wait, that did not Well, because it shows that she wasn't
0: listening to him. Yeah. It's a thing that you do when you're like talking to When somebody's talking to you, you're not listening to them and you respond with like, "Uh-huh," and then it like and then a split second later you register what they actually said and then you <laughs> respond appropriately. But it's like how do you put a human moment like that on a script? It's and, and how do you direct that? Like it, it, There's little tiny things in this movie that are just so impressive to me, uh, especially on this rewatch because I kind of knew the plot, so I was able to kind of really sit back and be like, what are these things that are making this movie so en- engrossing? Yeah, um, it's nice having seen all of these
1: movies to go back and see them again. Mm-hmm. For Fincher, I think is a really... Advantageous way of watching his his stuff because he has so many of those little moments that, on first pass, it's I think easy to get lost. Yeah, in these scenes that are really very powerful and very fulfilling. They feel very human.
0: Yeah. Um, well, and then on top of that, there is like big symbolic moments, like like what you referred to earlier when the janitor is scraping Somerset's name off the door. And while he's doing that, Arlie Ermey comes in and starts talking to him and tells him him about the murder of the attorney and says Mills is leading up the investigation. As soon as he says Mills is leading up the investigation, Somerset turns to the janitor and says, could you stop that, please? (laughs) And like that's the moment where – and then right after that they start talking about do you really want to retire? Are you sure you want to get out of the police force? Blah, blah, blah. But it's this great moment it's a symbolic moment of him being like, maybe I'm not ready for you to scrape my name off that door just yet. Uh, so on top of these really human moments, you get these very cinematic storytelling device moments, which are also the, the way that it balances is really cool. Did you have any problems with this movie? Uh-huh. Um, you know there is
1: not nothing in my notes. This is all mm-hmm. great stuff. We even get a uh, what I would describe as uh Edgar Wright moment where Yeah. Uh, Morgan Freeman states this isn't going to have a happy ending.
0: I know. Well, it's it, I mean that's classic. That's like Star Wars, you know. I got a bad feeling about this. Yeah.
1: It really um, I think you know there are moments in the plot that are a little you know the John Doe is remarkably ahead of the police I think that only works in a cinematic world well also but I think you, don't... you have to, you'd have to really nitpick to catch his yeah to, to catch holes in this because it's a fairly straightforward plot it's really well, the police never get ahead by uh, any uh, you know they never get ahead by luck they really have their one breakthrough yeah. by taking advantage of the FBI connection which uh, c- Coming from 2016 is not right. shocking in the least.
0: I know. That's the thing. First of all, the FBI thing is not shocking at all to us. The other thing is using the library as a plot device. Like you don't need to, You nobody goes and gets books from the library. Like rib- library le- records are not uh, something that would be a reliable way to track down a serial killer. Yeah. Now we would um, just track your metadata. Exactly. Yeah. They just, they just tap into your cell phone. Um, if the other I mean the one thing, and I think Aaron and Jim also mentioned this on their podcast, is the whole thing of this thing happening in seven days. I don't think that needed to be there. Like the whole thing of Monday, you know, having the title cards that say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Like, I don't think it needed to happen in seven consecutive days for it to be um affecting. And that one that seems a tiny bit shoehorned, but I'm nitpicking here. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that I feel like if you if, if if it was your last week of work and you were retiring, you probably wouldn't be taking on new cases.
1: Well, and your boss, how big of a dick is yeah. your boss to put you on a case like
0: that? Well, to put you on, like, really, like, you, I feel like if you're in your last week as a homicide detective, you're basically desk jockeying and, you know, wrapping up some paperwork and making sure that your files get transferred to the right guys, uh, you know, the right detectives, um after you leave like i feel like there'd be a lot of cleanup work that you'd need to pass off but like i said nitpicky stuff because it's i don't want to make this comparison but i keep doing it in my head so i guess i'll say it the script for this movie is so impressive that i would put it on par with the script for back to the future but it's like the back to the future for serial killer movies in, in terms of how good, the pl- how good the script is, you know, I didn't know Back to the Future had so many plot holes until I listened
1: to Jim and Aaron's breakdown of that movie. Oh, yeah. There are a bunch of weird quirks that I would never have Oh, there's have a ton of, of weird other. quirks.
0: But the movie works so well because it's so engrossing and fun. Like, and you're just a log for the ride. It's so similar in this one. And, you know, it's the thing of watching the movie and experiencing that movie through the eyes of the main characters. I feel feel like there's a tendency sometimes to have the really smart character of the room, and then we see everything the smart character does, and then we watch all the other other characters, uh, watch all the other characters figure it out. But we're smarter than those characters. A movie like Back to the Future or a movie like this, we're learning along with the characters, and we know everything that they know. And I feel like that gives you a really good device to go along in this ride with them, and it makes it a lot more entertaining.
1: Well, and that's what makes the last moments of this movie so tense that car ride yeah you can see brad pitt who knows the same things you do
0: yeah
1: has kind of closed the case in his head and as a viewer you're with morgan freeman you know that something's not right and you can't suss it out because the movie (laughs) hasn't given you this isn't uh dark knight rises how is he gonna get out of the you know where Bane got out of the hole in the ground and oh the child without the mm-hmm. rope like Liz called that uh, probably about ten second ten seconds before yeah. Batman finally went up and did the jump without the rope. Uh huh. This movie doesn't give you that. You just know that oh something's not right. Something's I not right. Know what it is?
0: That's why I lo- my favorite. I think it's my favorite part of this movie because it gave me a chuckle and it also just is so good uh, and so. Disturbing in a lot of ways is once once uh, the package is delivered and Somerset is standing over the package and they're calling in the bomb squad and Somerset just kind of yeah uh, you know Morgan Freeman just kind of pushes his thumb back and forth in his hand and you could see him thinking and we're thinking the same thing we're like is it a bomb uh, but what's in there do we need to should we open it now and then the whole audience is like, wants to see what's in the box, wants to know what's in the box. And so I feel like if the audience was there, they'd be like, let's open the box. Let's see what's in there. <laughs> and so, but there's this great little moment where he just kind of wrings his hands and he goes, I don't know. He says it to himself. He says, I don't know to, my, to himself. And it, that's the exact same thing that the audience is thinking during that scene. Uh, it's I, I think it's my favorite part of the movie. It's so it's such a good... Example of what a great actor can do with a great line, because Morgan Freeman going through that, um, it's just it 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 kind of gave me goosebumps because it does it gives you a chuckle. You're like, I don't know either, but I think we should open it. And Then he's like, I'm going to open it. He commits uh, a federal offense opening somebody else's opens, mail. <laughs> well, that's the crazy thing about it too. It's almost like David Fincher understands the dialogue that's happening in your brain. And so he has a, almost a conversation with you through the actors as an audience member. It's, 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 it's expert filmmaking. And this is the second movie. Uh, I'm so excited to go and go through these movies now. Like, honestly, um, I was a little worried cause I was like, this is going to be really dreary. It's going to be kind of a dreary ride, but dude, 10 minutes into the movie, I was enthralled and now I am just so energized. Like, I'm so excited about this. I don't know where my doubts came from. Maybe I had a long day. But <laughs> it was it was ill-advised because this movie exceeded my expectations even more. Yeah, I definitely, for, I, I was
1: kind of jazzing myself up because I remember mm-hmm. the movie being a little bit of a downer. But yeah. with the critical eye towards filmmaking, yeah. it's such, it's there's a Goya painting that's uh, Saturn eating a baby uh, mm-hmm. and it's really a messed up picture in a lot of ways. There's a lot going on in the, but it's such a well done painting and it's so powerful that you still want to look at it despite the fact mm-hmm. that it's a
0: dude eating a baby and like,
1: just not even just like eating, like tearing it apart. And it's, really powerful so see
0: now you're just describing this to me and now i have a terrible image in my head and i feel like if i actually saw the painting it wouldn't be that bad there you go you should go look it up sometime it gets referenced a lot it's kind of like they brought up merchant of venice in this movie and have you seen merchant of venice the play yeah Uh, i think i've i think i read it in an english lit class at some point i i went and saw it a couple years ago and that
1: you know, you always hear the pound of flesh line and if you got uh-huh. me do, do I not bleed as a lot? There's a lot of context that makes that moment really, really punchy in the gut. And so to mm-hmm. have that come up now and having that base, I wish I had a better understanding of some of the intellectual works that they reference in this movie, because the way yeah. that they've managed, even the ones that I know, uh, I'm just curious to see how deep that rabbit hole goes.
0: Well- you know, it's kind of like the Mad Men thing because they do that. They do a lot of lyric, literary references on Mad Men, and I think what it does and it shows good filmmaking is you don't need to know them as an audience member. You're still going to get a lot of enjoyment out of the story without knowing what they are. But they they're just icing on the cake if you take the time to learn what they are and what the references are. Or it's icing on the cake if you already know what they're referencing and why it's actually more important than it seems, or something like that. Um, but it's a great thing of, of having multiple levels. You can still watch it without knowing any of that stuff and get a lot of enjoyment. But knowing it just makes it that much better. Yeah. So what Fincher,
1: fincherisms are we looking for moving ahead? I feel like we should enumerate yeah. a few.
0: Okay, I'm gonna look for not for what's off screen, keeping stuff off screen, mm-hmm. uh, and then I'm also gonna look for claustrophobia or you know claustrophobic uh, type. Um, environments and creating closed down condensed environments inside big sprawling areas like outer space or Los Angeles.
1: Well, and those really feed off of each other too. having, Mm -hmm. because it's so claustrophobic, it almost requires you to have things (laughs) occurring off screen because pulling them in would expand the frame to a degree that would make you just not feel that intense kind of dread yep um and we've got a lot of dread movies on this
0: i don't know if there's that many actually i mean gone girl is a dread movie panic room uh, super dread. You- panic, panic room girl with a dragon tattoo the game the game but then we also have fight club which is kind of a rip-roaring yeah uh zodiac you know, i don't testosterone fueled fantasy you have uh yeah zodiac's kind of a dread movie you're right. But then you got Social Network Benjamin Button. The
1: social so, network, I think we're going to I remember it with more dread just the because <laughs> of the the nature of those the relationships between people in that
0: movie. I am so interested to see how that movie and I want to see like from a foresight perspective if David Fincher's kind of seen what Facebook had like some foresight as to what Facebook would become. And maybe that's where the dread will come from. It's like this bright-eyed uh, young genius is trying to figure out how to you know, make his mark, creates Facebook, and then sets in motion like the destruction of Western civilization. And that's actually what it's about. Um, uh, and we don't have to get into that here. Well, that's I'm just like so tired of Facebook, and yet I'm so goddamn addicted to it. I hate it. It's like my smoking. It's basically my smoking habit.
1: It's basically you and Pokemon Go.
0: No, I love Pokemon Go now. Now, yeah. I guess it started with. Uh...
1: I see what you okay. Anyways, I get off track. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the things... main
0: thing is this is the 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 this. We'll talk. I'll talk about it in the in the social network thing, but this trending. The thing on the side of of Facebook, on the right side, this trending thing where you could see all the trending stuff that's happening—that is the cesspool of the world. And I'll I'll leave it at that. Yes, well, that's because people are, like they say in Men in Black, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, stupid animals, <laughs> and we know it. Um, some great lines in this movie, though. I want to get back to it because I want to I want to end on a high note here. Uh. I love the line. I love this line that even the most promising clues only lead to others. Like, that is such an interesting thing to think about, especially that, that really, that line puts you in the head of a detective. That it's, you got to do it for the long haul. You got to have patience. One of the things that, um, that Somerset almost commends John Doe for is having patience. Uh, and it really is. This whole movie is about patience versus impulse. Um, Well, that's you know. There's another line from Somerset when he's talking about having a baby,
1: Mm -hmm. and he tells Paltrow, "I made the right choice, but not a day goes by I don't regret that decision." Yep. And that's probably similar to the end of the movie with Brad Pitt, where Mm -hmm. if he didn't kill John Doe, he'd probably still get insanity or something you know that he i think he's gonna be fine i he i honestly don't die think... and so brad pitt yeah. instead executes it's similar to what we get with tarantino a lot where it's that uh the brute force justice
0: yeah i just feel like i mean maybe if the word maybe if it got leaked and <laughs> somebody they do with put it cell out... phone video yeah well they <laughs> do no put it out there
1: of of uh nothing including the box in there
0: yeah well i mean the the john doe hints that it's really easy for cops to uh leak stuff to the press you just gotta pay them some money they're gonna tell you what's going on uh and there were a ton of cops there at the end so maybe it does get leaked to the press but i also feel like the cops would do everything in their power to make sure that mills doesn't get uh you know sent to prison basically so that was an amazing movie. Great experience. And you, the listener, I'm happy that you're along for the ride. Please, uh, stay on board forums.ballmove.com. There will be a forum post up there for the game, which is the movie we're watching next week. You can also send us an email direct podcast at gmail.com. And, uh, we'd love to read it on the show. So please get in touch with us in those two ways. We'll be on the forum. So, uh, please feel free to discuss, uh discuss with discuss with us there um hopefully i could type a little bit better than i could talk right now and until next week i'm eric i'm levi cut